Thank you very much, uh, Casey. I appreciate the introduction. I'm just happy to be here. It's kind of hard to explain. I, I work for the University of Notre Dame. I live in Helena, and I do most of my work in California. So I'm all over the place. But Montana is definitely home. Born and raised in Great Falls, proud graduate of Carroll College. So I love this state. And as Casey mentioned, my travels throughout my teaching career have allowed me, I hope, to bring uh, a global perspective to the state and the state's history that we all love. So I taught for eight years in Shanghai, China. As you'll see, that's kind of the origins of some of this project. So you'll see some of my students here at the Montana Historical Society and the MHS and its wonderful staff have been amazing partners in this work for the last eight or nine years as I've been trying to uncover more about uh, Montana's Chinese communities. And obviously, I'm not the first to work on this, and I'll, I'll give nods to those who, who have been doing important work. But about eight years ago, we stumbled across some documents in Chinese at the Montana Historical Society. Rich Arstad was key in bringing these to, to light for us. And they were these huge boxes of documents that were all in Chinese. And we didn't know many people who read Chinese. And it just happens I was teaching in a little town of 25 million in Shanghai, China. I thought maybe I knew some people who read Chinese, but it wasn't that simple, as you'll see. But that started a transnational translation project that tried to bring Montana history and, and view it through the lens of world history and more specifically Chinese history. And so that's what I do as I try to tell the story of the Chinese communities in Montana with all of those lenses applied. And so as we found that first box of documents, it was about 1890s to 1920 era, about 90 documents, we came up with this trans, transnational translation project where we, the, my students in Shanghai were working at the same time that I had students here in Helena, Montana at the Montana Historical Society, back and forth to try and translate these. But it wasn't as simple as knowing Chinese today, because in 1949 with the communist victory, or with the fall of China, depending on your politics, the language changed. And the written language was simplified so that the traditional language, the traditional writing form in the 1890s or 1910s is almost indecipherable to people who read simplified Chinese today. And even another layer on top of that is depending on where you're from in China, you can read the script possibly, but the way you verbalize the pronunciations is going to be different. So this is a student of mine who's explaining, well, if, you're, if you say this in Mandarin, it's going to sound like this. If you say it in Cantonese, it's going to sound like this. If you say it in Taishanese, it's going to sound like this. So there were many, many different layers to try and tell this story. So we needed students either from Taiwan, where the traditional form of writing was preserved as the nationalists fled after the Chinese Civil War, or we needed people of a certain generation. So this was not just transnational translation, it was intergenerational. We had grandmas and grandpas coming in and doing this work with us, and they were teaching their granddaughters and grandsons. It was really exciting. Even more exciting, I think, was we got to come here to Montana with some of my students, and you'll see some of their work throughout this. So this is us at the Meiwa Museum, which, as I'm sure you all know, does important work in telling the story of the Chinese in Butte specifically. So as we were here, this is us at China Row Cemetery outside Forestvale Cemetery. The team was working back in Shanghai to try and explain what we could about the, these documents. I mentioned that collection of documents, 1890s to 1920s. We found another box of documents, 1930s to 1950s. It was a completely different story, so it's kept us busy. And I've since moved on, obviously, but I'm still trying to mine the fruits of this labor. And what we saw kept, kept coming to the surface were 
questions about spirituality, questions about culture and religion, and especially about cemetery practices, burial practices for the Chinese communities here. This is a, a couple of the, the team inspecting a tombstone at China Row Cemetery. So we were doing this work, and we also realized there were those who had gone before us. Key to this work is Dr. Robert Swartout of Carroll College, who did some of the early work and did it very, very well in the Chinese history of Montana. And he actually visited our class in Shanghai, where they were doing this work. So it was just worlds coming together that was very, very exciting. So Dr. Swartout's work has been key to the foundations of this. And as I've heard mentioned throughout today, at every session I've been at, the work of Dr. Ellen Baumler has been key in helping to tell this story. So thank you so much for that. One of her uh, colleagues that she was on his dissertation committee did key work on this as well, Dr. Chris Merritt whose PhD dissertation was on the Chinese history of Montana from 1862 to 1943. That was a foundational piece of work as well. And then a woman named Patricia Bitt, who did a study on China Row Cemetery, has been key to this. So we began seeing Montana's Chinese pioneers all over Helena, all over Butte. Yesterday I had a chance to visit Bozeman, and through Crystal's leads with the Extreme History Project, I visited Sunset Hills and, and through your map found the Chinese tombstones there, so it just keeps coming up. What we see is that they did maintain their spiritual practices, their religious and cultural practices, and sometimes there's a Venn diagram, is this religious, is it cultural? Eh, it's Chinese, okay? It provided comfort for these people who were so far from home, provided solidarity, and it provided support. In a very real way, they felt that their ancestors who had passed on and gone before them were active in the present. And if they kept those ancestors happy, fortune might smile upon their descendants in the present. So yes, it is spiritual, it is mystic, it is ritualized. They felt that this was a key uh, attribute that would lead to their success. But it also possibly led to increased discrimination. Especially in larger cities, these funeral processions gained a lot of attention, gained a lot of newspaper attraction, and the Chinese stood out to begin with, and stood out maybe culturally and religiously even more. And so we'll see at times that increased discrimination, increased persecution happened because of their continuation of their religious traditions. My assertion is that they adapted their traditional spiritual practices to the realities in the American West for a couple of different reasons, as we'll see. Now, I know we've got a lot of Montana history knowledge here, and I know you all know that there was a large Chinese population in our territory and in our state, and this graph from Chris Merritt really illustrates that. Okay? Extremely important part of Montana's early history. We'll see around 1890, it was over 2,500 Chinese in Montana, and then that dips pretty quickly after that. Why does that dip? Where did they go? Some of it was deportations, in the 1903 to 1906 phase. Some of it was a continuation of the Chinese Exclusion Act and the, the strengthening of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Some of it was death, right? And so we need to look at what were their burial practices here? What were they allowed to do? How did they express themselves in the, in the afterlife, let's say? And so from the Benton Weekly Record in June 2nd, 1881, this image didn't come out great, but I'll read it to you. It'd be interesting to know the significance of the various rites, and we've made several efforts to obtain the information, whites communicating with the Chinese. But the Chinese were very reticent and are not willing to communicate what we were anxious to find out. 
Well, that was in 1881. I'm anxious to find it out now, still, too. And it turns out, as I mentioned before, Dr. Chris Merritt, in his foundational PhD dissertation, was interested to find out as well. So this remains, but I think we need to bring an understanding of Chinese religion, Chinese culture to it, to answer these questions. So, were these people practicing Confucian beliefs? The newspapers seem to think so. The funeral ceremony is attendant of the death of a disciple of Confucius. Okay, okay. Were they Buddhist? The newspapers seem to think so. At the grave of the coffin was placed on the ground, and a Chinaman in a blue jumper and overalls began the Buddhist burial rites, kneeling on the ground and uttering this unintelligible jargon. Okay, okay. Were they Taoist or Taoist? Well, the newspapers tended to think so. They didn't really call it that, though, but this is a description of feng shui. Okay. So the horseshoe in China is looked upon as a harbinger of good luck. For that reason, Chinese mandarins, when buried, have horseshoe graves. What that means is you'd be backed by a mountain with two hills on either side and a sloping descent before you with water. But also, there was what's called an omega tombstone that was shaped like the Greek letter omega that could look like a, a, a horseshoe. So the newspapers are kind of saying they're Confucian, they're Buddhist, they're Taoist. Sometimes they say it all together. Yeah, Chinese who understood how to conduct this funeral that we witnessed, whether under Buddhistic or Taoist, religion is unknown. That was probably closer to the truth. They didn't really know. And so sometimes they just said with, they were buried with all the mystic rites of the Orient. <laughs> and I go back to that quotation. It would be interesting to know. Yes, it would be interesting to know, and that's what I'm trying to do. And so my point is, we must understand these practices through the exploration of spiritual beliefs from southern China. And I'm very specific when I say that, from southern China. We can't just say Chinese religious traditions. China's quite large. Okay? When I was uh, fortunate to be studying and working there, I got to travel with my students all over China. And I visited graves out in Xinjiang, far western China, and their spiritual and burial practices were very, very different than of the Chinese who came here. So we have to be more specific than saying this is a Chinese practice. We're talking southern Chinese, very specifically from these counties, most specifically from Taishan County, where the vast majority of the Chinese who came to America and who came to Montana were from this county. And so let's look back at that graph, that I, or that, that kind of visual that I came up with. Yes, we do see elements of Confucian traditions. Careful here, not religion, but a philosophy or a tradition. What we see in the Chinese practices, they do practice filial piety, so reverence for elders, reverence for ancestors, and they emphasize order and ritual. And we'll see that again and again in these burial practices. So there is an element of Confucianism. There definitely is an element of Taoism. And that's where, if you know a little bit about it, you hear about yin and yang, you know, you got that black and the white and the balance and of natural forces. This would be the feng shui that we talked about a little bit before. That definitely does come up in the white newspaper's reports on what they observe of the Chinese spiritual practices. Buddhism, I didn't see it that much. I didn't see it that much. Possibly a little sense of karma and that what you do in this life can earn you a better life in the next. That's a bit of an inference. I do think, though, for Buddhism and Taoism, both have a belief that supernatural forces influence the present. Confucianism, not as much. It's more of a philosophy than a religion. So Buddhism and Taoism, that you keep the spirits in the next life happy so that it imp impacts this life. And we do see that very much in the Chinese spiritual practices. 
But I think really that, that graphic is best expressed like this. An overlap of Confucianism and Taoism come together to form Chinese spirituality or Chinese beliefs, Southern Chinese spiritual beliefs. Okay? Now, I'm a guy from Great Falls making this claim. Okay, I, yeah, I happen to live in China, but let's hear from some of my students who did a film at China Row about what the Chinese burial practices are like today and might have been like in the past. I'll just try to put the mic up to my speaker here and we'll see if that will work. Today we're here at the China Row Cemetery in Helena, Montana, where we estimate around 200 people were buried here. All of them uh, Chinese immigrants. A good filial son or daughter, descendants of um, someone that might be buried here, would come here probably on an annual basis and sweep the tomb, uh, venerate their ancestors. So the traditional setup of the ceremony is um, all one, one might do in, in Confucian context. In ATF, or the Tomb Sweeping Festival, which comes around somewhere in April every year, to uh, go sweep tombs, basically. We would first uh, remove uh, remove all the weeds and grassy uh, overgrowth around the tomb. The, uh, the sort of strictest part of what one might do in this sort of ceremony would be uh, lighting a candle and then lighting the three sticks of incense for each person from that flame. So then you would bow three times um, towards the uh, to, towards your ancestor and uh, make the proper offerings to their uh, them on the other side. And then we would uh, put some of the foods and some some fruit, something that they would have liked to eat uh, when they were alive. You know, next to the two lumps of rice and some baijiu, which is basically a hard liquor. In this context, when we uh, burned incense or when one burns paper money, for example, it's supposed to be for your ancestors' use on the other side. So that's uh, a proper display of your filial piety and um, your respect for your ancestors. Uh, here in China Row, though, um, there have been no descendants left behind. There's no been no community here to um, continue that that expected tradition. Um, so this is uh, this is what one might do in in China Row for, for the ancestors very here. So the significance of tomb sweeping is basically kind of a way to remember um, your ancestors as well as respect them and honor them and everything that they've done to uh, put you where you are today. And it's a tradition carried around all around China basically. And if you are part of Chinese culture, this is something that is important to you. It's important to your heritage as well. So I thought that'd be a little bit more powerful than just me telling you about it. I actually have some people who experience that and practice that. And when we talk about Chinese burial practices, uh, something that I, I have found out in my research is it tends to be called white affairs. And white is the color of death in China. And so when we hear about white affairs, it tends to be about these things. So from Montana's newspapers, we get a sense of that color of death. The body completely dressed in a white costume or accompanied by six Chinamen, each with a piece of white tape tied around his arm. And these white affairs were very important to attend to with great precision in southern China. And so when the southern Chinese come here, it gets complicated. To bury a person without a proper attention to ritual details is to create a hungry ghost who will return to plague the living. And so the white affairs needed very specifically delineated 
professions. For, for a proper burial, you needed a priest, a musician, and two corpse handlers. Okay? And so in southern China, if you were to attempt a burial without these taken care of well, it might be dangerous. Anyone who attempts to bury a family member without the services of these four specialists would be risking serious consequences. Those consequences are the creation of a hungry ghost, an ancestor whose spirit is not fed, and whose displeasure in the afterlife will create misfortune in this life. That's one of the dangers of an improper burial. But a second danger is more realistic in, for, for the present. It's the issue of corpse pollution. In a Taoist Chinese sense, the idea is that death releases polluting elements. And those polluting elements, when interacted with by the present, create an unclean person. A person who's ritually unclean, who's going to suffer misfortune. So, the above there, the priest had very much hands off of the corpse, was not touching the corpse, was not accepting corpse pollution in that sense. But musicians and the corpse handlers would take on corpse pollution, largely because they were outcast members of society, and it was a niche profession for outcast members of society. So mu these musicians for funerals, and especially the corpse handlers, were dirty, were considered polluted. Okay? Problem in Montana, did musicians who specialized in funeral dirges migrate to Montana? Did corpse handlers pack their bags to come to Montana? No. And so adaptations were needed. Ladies, I'm sorry about this one, but women often filled this role because in a Taoist sense, women are of the yin force. Death is of the yin force, and so it was more of a match. Men feared pollute corpse pollution, and women it was not as much of a concern. And so women often filled the role of corpse handler here in Montana and throughout the American West, but the white-controlled newspapers reporting on Chinese burials didn't understand this necessarily. So in 1873, the chief mourners and conductors of the ceremony being the female portion, the men looked coolly on and took no part in whatever. They're keeping themselves distanced from corpse, corpse pollution. So Chinese women had that role to a large extent. Do you see a problem here in Montana for Chinese women? Gender imbalance. In 1870, 14 Chinese men to each Chinese woman and it only gets worse. And this was, there's a different story here about really specifically enacted American legislation to keep Chinese women out so that the population would not be sustainable, to be quite honest with you. And so men did have to serve as corpse handlers when needed. And we have an interesting account from Butte's Mount Moriah Cemetery. At the Chinese section of Mount Moriah, when the pallbearers carried the coffin down the center and laid it beside the grave, Suddenly, he, the guy who was leading the ceremony, changed key in his wailing, stamped furiously and seemed to give a vent to a tirade of abuse. No sooner did he cease than a yell went up from the assembled Chinamen, obviously not a politically correct term, but we're quoting the primary sources here, and the pallbearers springing forward almost dumped the coffin into the grave, leaving the undertaker's men, non-Chinese men, to fill the grave. And so it's reported almost as if they're disrespectful or cool or aloof or even cruel. Well. After a man touches seven corpses in Chinese spiritual beliefs of the region that they came from, he can no longer be made ritually clean. So they are serving the community in this way, but they want to get it done as quickly and as cleanly as possible. This is obviously not sustainable either, women or Chinese men. And so what we actually see is a further adaptation, a use of non-Chinese undertakers. Specifically in Helena, it was Herman and Company. Here are some of the records from the MHS 
about purchasing a coffin, who would dig the grave, who would be the pallbearers. And notice, it doesn't give much identifying information for the Chinese individual being buried, right? Just Chinaman and how much they paid Herman and company. And I, I really do believe this is an adaptation of Chinese spiritual beliefs to the realities in Montana. In Billings, we have the same situation, use of non-Chinese undertakers. The undertaker in Billings was Herman Smith, and here uh, a guy named Wong Fong from Glendive, his body is brought to Billings to be processed by Herman Smith. And they actually remarked on it, undertakers who bury China, Chinese say they are the best to pay and will provide anything that a Chinaman needs in the way of funeral and casket, etc. I don't think the undertakers who were being used understood Chinese spiritual beliefs, but they got paid, right? Another adaptation was one of those required uh, personnel was the musician. And music is key to attract and soothe and guide the spirit of the recently departed. But if you profit from white affairs, if you accept money from these death practices, you take on corpse pollution. And so the music was necessary, but the Chinese community wanted to avoid corpse pollution. So what do they do? They find non-Chinese bands. The Silver Cornet Band. Orton's Band. And the Turnverein Turn Band, a German-American band, to provide the music. Didn't matter what the song was. The music kept and soothed and guided the spirit of the recently departed. Some common elements that if you have a passing understanding of Chinese burial practices that you might hear about are spreading of ritual paper with holes in the middle. We do see that done quite a bit, and it's so that theoretically the, the evil spirits that are following the, the spirit of the recently departed can't travel around corners very easily, and they've got to crawl through each little hole. We do see that reported quite a bit. Food offerings. Feng Shui. Honestly, I didn't see evidence of Feng Shui in their burial practices here. In California, we have evidence of that. In Nevada, we have evidence of that. But here, I think, because they didn't choose their burial plots, they couldn't cho cho choose a place that had good feng shui. So I do believe they believed in that, but I don't think it was within their power to choose. Here's one of the earliest reports we have from October 1865 in Virginia City. And it does have you know, the burning of the tapers and the candles and the things like that. The thing that caught my attention here, though, is this. The evil spirit, Gui. This non-Chinese reporter had to have talked to some Chinese because this is the word for ghost in Chinese. And so there was some coming together, some attempt to try and understand what was going on. So from 1865, we have this Chinese word making its way into the newspaper account. The other thing that caught my attention is this, buried in a shallow grave. Why? Why buried in a shallow grave? The process of exhumation. The Chinese who came here didn't want to remain here in life and didn't want their remains to stay here in death. And so there is this tradition of second burial. But in southern China, where this very much is and was a tradition, it was mostly for the elite. The elite and powerful officials could expect their bones to be exhumed and reburied with good feng shui. Okay, and that would happen in southern China. And it would happen if they were traveling around the world as well. An adaptation happened in America where it wasn't just the elite powerful who could expect this, but laundry workers, restaurant workers, gardeners, miners, railroad workers began to do this as well. And I think it's because of the accumulation of wealth that happened through the American West that this tradition adapted and evolved. 
And so we have reports in the Helena Weekly Herald about this process. It's long been known that Chinamen had the superstitious regard for their bones to be laid in their rest, last rest in the sacred soil of China. We have no doubt that it's done here in Helena, but when, how, or by whom, we have no curiosity to know. So long as it's done in a way as not to offend or injure anyone, we certainly would not interpose an obstacle. Well, I do have a curiosity to know when, how, or by whom. But this practice of digging up the bones five to seven, sometimes 10 years after the burial, did open the Chinese up to discrimination. As we see in 1873, I'm sorry, 71, the Chinaman clings to idolatry and heathenism with the tenacity of life and is a superstitious barbarian whose hatred of our country is so deeply implanted that they will not so much as make our soil the receptacle for their dead. And in 1893, the Chinaman's life is not our life. His religion is not our religion. His one object in life is to make all the money he can and return again to his native land, dead or alive. The Attorney General at the time even expressed a view that this desire to have your bones sent home to China was proof that Chinese were not suitable for citizenship. Well, a Chinese guy responded to the Attorney General. Chuan Loy of Butte answered, the bodies of our countrymen are shipped back to China for the same reason that the bodies of Eastern people who die here are sent back East that they can be laid to rest besides relatives. And so how would this process take shape? Identification of the remains was key, and oftentimes that was through the wooden headboard, and Ellen showed some examples of that. But that's not going to persist very long. It wasn't intended to persist in, in perpetuity. Just long enough to identify the individual, when they died, where they died, and where their remains should be sent to. So why do I have a stone tombstone here? Because we don't have any wooden, wooden tombstones left. Right. The other, uh, so this is a, a quote about that. A board was placed at the foot of the grave in, uh, instead of at the head. It was covered with hieroglyphs, and one half of it was buried. What also was used was at times a bottle with a note inside of it, and at times a burial brick, a brick with the identifications that the, the wooden headboard would have on it. To my knowledge, only one brick, brick has existed in Montana that's been known of in the historic record. It was uncovered by a WPA work crew in Missoula in 1937. And it said, Lifu Lim is buried here. Well, not anymore. They opened up the, the casket as, as it had been disturbed, and there were silks, and there were some offerings, but the bones weren't there. So the burial brick worked, and Lifu Lim now rests somewhere in southern China. Here in Helena, this is a picture from China Row, and you can see some iron remains. I do believe that those are the external, uh, what remains from some coffins from exhumation. It talks about the process of when, how, and by whom. Their dry bones are enclosed in an unpretending canvas bag and in charge of guards provided by the Chinese companies. The bones of those celestials buried here for 10 years or more. The coffins are generally rotted away, and it's not the easiest task in the world to gather the bones together. But the ingenious Chinese have adopted a plan by which they are absolutely certain of finding all the bones of their dead country. They pan them out. They pan them out. They turn loose a lot of Chinese plaster miners in the graves, and those fellows go to work as if mining for gold and digging up the earth and panning it. Every bone, every bone must be found. And then they're dried and sent back for second burial. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit for sake of time. Yeah, let's go here. So, it's long, again, the why, how, or by whom. We have more recent records about China, about China Row. This, it's, it's hard to show a divot in a picture, but these are my colleagues standing at China Row, and there's a, 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 a hole. 
and the bones have been exhumed. In the early 1940s, many of the bones of the Chinese were removed for reburial in China. A member of a Chinese society came to Mr. Paulson, who was the caretaker for Forestvale, presented his credentials and asked for permission to open the graves of certain Chinese. The remains were packed in designated boxes, loaded in a large limousine to be sent to San Francisco and transported to their native China. This continued probably until 1949, when then communist China and the United States had some issues, and there was an embargo that made sending remains back no longer possible. What also is present in some of the uh, burial plots are these funeral burners or altars. This is from Mount Moriah Cemetery, where offerings would have been burned, as my students mentioned, to make them of use to the people who had gone before. This is in China Row, and this is all we have left here. This pile of bricks is what's left of the funeral altar outside of Forest Vale Cemetery here. And if only we could know what it looked like back when it was in use. I would love to know. Wouldn't you love to know? All right, let's take a look. The use of an altar was a key factor in Chinese burial procedures. Bob Morgan, a local of Helena, witnessed a Chinese funeral as a young boy at China Row. He painted a beautiful watercolor of the altar, which is now kept at the Montana Historical Society. Uh, they moved all the Chinese over adjacent to the cemetery. We were the uh, people at the Historical Society. Somebody asked me if I knew where the Chinese cemetery was, and I used to watch the funerals when I was a little guy. And they had a, there was an altar there, and it was built uh, out of brick with the top round right top on it, and then it was open. We'd watch they put all the all the food for the journey in there. And I remember the gongs and things they had. It, it was quite a quite a thing. And and so to go past what was just described in the 1870s or 1880s dismissively as they were buried with all the mystic rites of the Orient, I wanted to know what we could find out about that. I think we have to understand the Chinese in Montana through understanding their religious beliefs of southern China, and it's a, a combination of a continuation of those beliefs and adaptation to the new realities in Montana. I found it interesting. I hope you did as well. Thank you. Thank you.